Welcome to the Atlantic Interview. My guest today is Caitlin Flanagan, who is one of America's most famous writers and certainly one of the Atlantic's most famous writers. And she's won a bunch of prizes for her great journalism. And she happened to be in town. And I said, let's go make a podcast. So welcome, Caitlin Flanagan. Two corrections. Well, you can't correct me before we've even started. Okay. Okay, correct me. I've only ever won one award, unless you count Bitch Magazine calling me the douchebag of the century. Um, Wait, you were... What is Bitch Magazine? I don't know. I don't think it exists anymore, but I have it on my CV. Really? It was a name calibrated for success. It was. On the newsstand. (laughs) Okay, what was the other correction? I didn't happen to be in town. You kindly invited me to town. Oh, yeah. That's true. Um, All right. I bought my ticket. Because that's boring. She's in town in Washington because I invited her to town to, among other things, talk about her work on the Me Too campaign, her writing on Me Too, and to talk to you, the podcast audience, about her National Magazine Award-nominated piece on a death in a fraternity at Penn State. We're going to talk about that. Caitlin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Very nice. Very nice. (laughs) Uh, Caitlin, we're talking about two different kinds of male behavior that society mainly finds unacceptable these days. Is that a fair linkage? Yeah, definitely. That These kind of violent hazing events that take place in fraternities is certainly a, a male event. And then what's going on with the Me Too movement seems to include male behavior and a certain kind of female response to that male behavior. So, yeah. Why don't we ever see sorority deaths? Well, there's a couple of reasons. Number one is that the fraternity experience in some ways is a substitute for the military in that there was a notion early on in college life in the 19th century that college was a very feminizing experience, that instead of doing something powerful with your body and defending uh, your country, that you were sitting around and reading things and being lorded over by these, you know, fussy old ministers who used to run all the great colleges, and that by joining a fraternity where you had to do dangerous and scary things, you would prove your manhood. And I think the link to that and today is that colleges have once again become extremely feminized, and they're not welcoming places to the typical kind of man. They're more diverse than they were, but the typical fraternity attorney member is still a white, straight, conservative male, and they are not welcome in many places on campus. They're kind of demonized. And so I think the feminization of the college campus, just as even all male colleges were considered feminizing in the 19th century, I think that's led once again to a very extreme kind of fraternity behavior right now. Is it possible that the behavior of these males is and the things that they seek is not natural and just a product of being male, but it's a construct in a way, and that what people see as the feminization of males on the college campus is just asking males not to be assholes? No, no, because when you go on a college campus today, I often wonder what it would be like to be this dreaded thing of being just, let's just say, a straight white male, because there are so many events um, talking about the problems that they have caused historically and the problems that they cause currently, and that the patriarchy is currently functioning and that it has to be smashed and it has to be destroyed. And, you know, it's, it's absolutely no surprise that fewer and fewer men are going to college, and that's absolutely feeding into the problem because 
Um, it changes the dynamic between men and women on a, on a college campus. So I don't think it's so much that men are men themselves are being feminized. It's that the campus politics are feminized in a particular kind of weaponized way. I mean, I happen to believe that it's good for boys to have hard experiences, to have hard physical experiences. Early army service is very useful. It was useful to me. But then I think to myself, well, maybe that's not a gender-specific issue. Maybe females should also have those kind of tough experiences. Young men crave to be in some position where men of authority are in leadership and in role models and setting for them tasks that are difficult. They crave that very much. And they have an innate desire to take that wild energy of male youth and direct it in some purposeful and meaningful way. That's a deep male need that is crosses time and culture and even this nutty moment in which we unfortunately find ourselves. And there are precious few places outside of campus sport where the very maleness of a young male student is not reviled, but is welcomed. And that place is a fraternity. And unfortunately, from your perspective, that's a negative place to act out this wild and natural maleness. Right, because fraternities are sort of pointless exercises. They're just places to have fun, and they're places to to drink and have a clubhouse and watch football. They're not places that make men out of boys. Maybe in some past day there was a notion of a fraternity man, but the fraternity man is now a frat boy. So there isn't that anymore. The well, ROTC would be one Right, right. And that does seem to be coming back in favor with students. Is that true? Is there more ROTC now than there was in the 90s? I think certainly after Don't Ask, Don't Tell was gotten rid of, campuses were more amenable. Right, right, right. That. That's what it was. I don't know culturally right. if that's a thing. But uh, well, take us very specifically to Penn State. Give us the, the two-minute version of the tragedy of Penn State. Penn State is a deeply problematic place, which has basically for many years been a powerful football team to which a mid-level state college was attached. So within that dynamic, the fraternities that have produced generations of pretty tough hazing and all the bad parts of fraternities have gone virtually unchecked. And one of these fraternities had already been closed, was the worst of the worst, but had been recently been reopened. And on the first night in which a group of pledges accepted their membership bids, they were required to drink a lot of booze. It was actually one of the least hazy of things that fraternities do. It was just one night of heavy drinking. But a pledge named Tim Piazza, by all accounts a very nice young man, 19 years old, took a devastating fall. And all the— Well, well, thoroughly intoxicated. Well, thoroughly intoxicated and was— seriously injured, and many people who looked at him could see from his bruises that were very evident that he was seriously injured. But the members were craven. They were afraid they'd get in trouble for it. And they were also brutal. They decided to just treat him as any other very drunk kid, which meant they they hit him, they slapped him around, they threw water on him, they threw things at him, and then they left him alone in a room where he all but died. And that room happened to have security cameras in it. So a horrible, horrible video of this young man desperately trying to get out of that fraternity and get help, crawling and crawling across a floor over a 12-hour period, was discovered by the police. And he was eventually located and died two days later. And so it's really kind of a test case of will the young men who were part of that, will they be found guilty in a criminal case of manslaughter? 
And have the fraternities now gone so out of control that that something needs to be done to reform them nationally? Talk about the young men who are uh, allegedly culpable in this death. Are they monsters? That's such a good question. Fraternities are really um, attractive places for sadists. Oftentimes, there'll be one or two sadists within a fraternity, and that's when there's a really bad hazing thing or something grotesque happens. That's often the case. The sadist who drives the process. Yes, when it gets really weird, you know, when you hear of a weird branding incident or something and you really look into it, there's oftentimes one brother who was just attracted by all the hazing and he ran it. Here, By branding, you mean branding with fire, branding, right. yeah, actual branding. Right. And anyways, they, um, the young man who was the president of it, Brendan Young, seemed, if not to be a sadist, to be very calculating in his behaviors throughout the night and was really the architect of this death. I think he is a problematic kid. Some of the others were brutal kids. You call them kids, but they're actually adults. Legally, they're adults. But as I say, they're in this process of young that young men go through during this age where they're desperately trying to become men, and they don't know any way to do it. And the way they find to do it is by drinking and being rough with each other if they're in a fraternity. And some of them were, were sort of neutral about it and were kind of in groupthink. But afterwards, at least one, one young man at the initial hearing after some of the video was shown, he was seen to fall apart in the hallway outside the courtroom and just sobbing that he couldn't bear what he'd been a part of. And I, I think there is a lot of moral stain that goes on for some of these young men that they get roped into things, convinced that it's okay, they survived it themselves, and afterwards, it's very, very often when a kid breaks in a fraternity, when he really cracks, it's not when he's hazing, it's when he's forced to haze others. That's often the moral stain they live with for years afterwards. Right. Go to this issue of the responsibility of of a university in this situation. Would fraternities survive without the support of the universities? That's a good question. The real question is, could universities survive without the support of the fraternities? Fraternities right. are one of the few things that lure young men to colleges. So, so what is going to happen at Penn State, both in this case and at, and at Penn State in, in its fraternity system? Well, in an exciting movie version of this, story, you would have the fact that happened that over the summer, most of the most serious charges were thrown out because there were two essential hours of tape, of this crucial videotape, that the young men erased before the cops got there. And that particular machine that had recorded it had been sent to the FBI, which apparently is capable of some things because they managed to recover these two hours of tape over the fall. And now there are many more young men, several more young men have been brought in with charges and charges have been reopened on um, some of the ones who had them, dis- them dismissed, the manslaughter charges. And there's going to be a five-day hearing about whether or not these charges will be brought forward to a criminal trial. Um, I think next month it's going to happen. Do you think that these cases, and they do repeat, right? We have deaths every year in fraternities, parties gone awry, uh, hazing gone awry. You think anything's going to change? You know, they always say, or 
I guess I always say that. Um, <laughs> and now it's the royal day. Yes, it's the royal day. Um, everyone should say this thing now. Um, you know, fraternities grew out of Freemasonry, and in a sense, George Washington himself was originally a fraternity boy because he was a Freemason. It is as deep and old in the American culture. This whole strand of Freemasonry that leads into fraternity culture—it's something deep. It's something strange. We don't give it enough credit for the role that it's played historically, mm-hmm. and I think as as balkanized as the college campus is becoming, the you know the the social justice warrior, as to use that phrase, of college campus are making the fraternity men even more entrenched and fraternity membership is is rising as we can understand because it's somewhere that you're not inherently just called as sort of a loathsome person by dint of your gender. It's the only race. place these males can go where they don't feel loathed. One on of campus them is what you're arguing. One of them. Mm-hmm. All right. You are not to put labels on you but I'm about to put a label on you. I don't you're, feel safe. You're well, the, the Atlantic is not a safe space. Okay. Um, you're known as a cultural conservative, that that's shorthand for a critique of you which says that you believe in traditional gender roles and that you believe that there is such a thing as um, natural wild male behavior that has to be channeled appropriately. You do not believe that the genders are the same. Well, I don't believe in traditional gender roles in the sense that I, I think that women should do one kind of role and men should do the other kind of role. I don't believe in that at all. I think people should do whatever you know works best for them and for their lives. This toxic masculinity that we talk about is is one thing, but what's not given value is the profound nature of masculinity in its in its great and good aspects. And, you know, we had a big event here at the Atlantic. You had an event at the Atlantic and I was invited to it about Me Too. And it was a a large group of people came. Um, Many men invited, many women invited. Almost only women showed up. And there were complaints, bitter complaints. Why don't men come to things like this? And I was like, I would not come to this in a million years and get bitched out by you guys. Like, if you want men to get involved, let me tell you, if you threw out, put out an ad and say, listen, this is some women talking right now and we need some muscle on a project. There are rapists out there. We're, we're not safe. They're hurting us. Can you come and help us? You would not have been able to withstand how many men would have shown up to the Atlantic. Men have the, the good men and most men that we encounter in life are, have a great desire to protect the weak, a great desire to protect women. And they are not up for being endlessly told that that their hookups are acts of sexual assault and that everything they say is wrong and that they are just their very utterances are part of some grand patriarchal scheme to dominate women sexually. Just open parenthetical, but you're, you're framing this as strong and weak. And I think a lot of millennial women especially might hear you say, uh, imply that women are the weaker sex and need the protection of men and would say that uh, they're offended by that. I see a lot of weakness in these millennial women. Um, we talk about the Aziz Ansari case, you know, a woman who's so weakened that she can't say, I don't want to have this kind of sex. Don't do this to me. I'm going to leave. I think that's an act of crippling weakness on her part. And I think what's interesting is that in some most ways, these millennial women blow me away with their strength. I can't tell you how many young women I know 
who are doing all these things I would have been terrified to do as a young person. They're often going to parts of the world that are very hostile to women. They go into fields that I never even considered going into. They play sports in a way I never would have considered. They're so strong and they're so confident. But in their relationships with men, in these intimate moments, they're weak. And I think that is something we should fix. I think we should help them to be stronger in that situation. How do you differentiate between positive male behaviors and negative male behaviors? Part of that is 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 acknowledging, I think, and this is something that you do, that men and women are different. And maybe that's not something that people do very much anymore. Men and women are different. There's a whole range, obviously, but in the middle of that that distribution – most women are similar to each other and most men are similar to one another in in certain aspects. I've known many brave women. I've known many strong women. I've had many women help me with things that men couldn't help me with. And I've known many sensitive and delicate men. But in general, there is a profound, deep male urge and desire to do something valorous with that incredible physical strength that they have. And to be a protector of a woman is a strong desire. And what all these women last night were saying was, I want someone to protect me. But they never would have said, I want a particular man to protect me. But they want affirmative consent to protect them. They want um, bystander intervention to protect them. They want a, a demolished patriarchy to protect them. They're, they're speaking out from some deep desire that because of this sort of feminist poison that they've been drinking, they're not able to say what it is. And what they what they want is a a relationship, you know, if not a marriage, that if these young women put their sexual events within a context of a relationship with someone who deeply cared about them and had a great sense of responsibility toward them and got a lot of identity out of personal identity out of the fact that this incredibly worthy woman, this strong, great, smart woman thinks I'm worthy to be with her, I'm worthy to have her, you know, her time and her attention, that I'll, I'll go to the ends of the earth for this woman. If they had that, they would have, um, they wouldn't be in these horrible hookups that seem anti-orgasmic and sad and end up with them crying in a car and saying they've been sexually violated. Uh-huh. This is the first time that the term anti-orgasmic has been spoken on this podcast, right. by the way, so congratulations. Well, I think the podcast itself is anti-orgasmic. Do you? We Well, I don't know. I haven't listened to the other episodes, but this will bring it back By to the full way, orgasmic I'm range. totally offended that you haven't listened, which I okay. think I – think, I was I, afraid it would make me anti-orgasmic. No, I think – But Jeffrey you, Goldberg, you, don't you agree in your heart? I mean you manned up and joined the military and learned something about yourself and got a sense of yourself as a man that you're – high school experience had not given you, and you became profoundly changed in a way that I'm sure connected your sense of being able to defend should you need to your own family. Wouldn't you say that's true? Absolutely true. The question I have is, couldn't a woman feel the same exact way? I'm I'm all for it. 
for, for taking on the hard experiences to challenge yourself physically mm-hmm. also, not just mentally, but physically. Um, but why couldn't a woman feel that same um, excitement of doing the dangerous thing, of feeling now I'm equipped to defend my family like a mother bear rather than a father bear? Mm-hmm. What's the What's the difference? Well, I would say the difference is that uh, for a woman, as we see so many millennial women, for a woman to be able to do all those strong things and strong making things and yet feel so weak within a hookup relationship that she is looking for a protector and she's saying that she's been violated means that there's on some intimate level it's different to be a man than a woman because a man doesn't come out of those those experiences and say, I don't know how to express what I want sexually that out of the military. That tends to not be a problem right, that men have right. coming out of the military. Come back to something that you said. Will you define feminist poison for me? Right. I used to always call myself a feminist when I was young. I thought this is very important that I should be equal. And I could see as a young woman many ways that I wasn't equal and that there was a movement that was seeking and working to help me have equal opportunities was hugely exciting. And then, well, for me, I really fell away after everybody attacked Paula Jones and the different women who who were accusing Bill Clinton of sexual. The Bill Clinton episode radicalized you in some way. It radicalized me. I realized this has become a racket. That we're not we're no longer standing up for all women anymore. We're going to stand up for women who say a Republican assaulted them, and we're going to protect a man who um, gets accused of the same thing if he's a Democrat. And okay, but that was twenty years ago. Now you have Al Franken losing his job, yeah. um, for crimes much less serious than Harvey Weinstein's. No, I'm just crimes. saying where the radicalization began. Okay. Right. That it opened my eyes that there could be some, that we could be you know the old notion of a revolution becomes a movement and ends up as a rat. That we could be going into the racket stage. And for me, the idea that it wasn't the patriarchy who told women, you really need to be as sexually free as men. You need to never feel that you should have any emotion attached to it. You should feel absolutely empowered to enact pornographic, you know, porn scenarios with a man you don't really know. And at the end, you should feel like that was great. That was a feminist movement that taught them that. It was not the patriarchy that taught them that. The patriarchy couldn't really care less if they enjoyed those experiences or not. And I think there got to be a whole poisonous element that ended up crippling a lot of young women into they believe that they're constantly being undone by the patriarchy. And in fact, in a lot of respects, they're being undone that some, because someone told them that an inclination towards children and caring for them and spending all the hours you can with them in addition to whatever work you have to do in supporting the household, that, that those were not good things to do, that there was something more important and we're going to tell you what matters and being really sexually free so that you're going to have immediate, intense sexual experiences with men you hardly know and you're going to be driven toward a life where your children are excess responsibilities that you shouldn't spend too much time and I think that that was poisonous that had nothing to do with equality and I think it's left women in a very bad position a lot of them right now and very confused I would make the observation that no one seems very happy right now right the, but I could also see the argument explaining that phenomenon by people who say look we now know that powerful men in industry after industry after industry have 
done heinous things to women. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the lines you draw. What's the difference between Aziz Ansari and Charlie Rose and Harvey Weinstein? And I and I ask this with uh, uh, with serious intent because there are people people you're arguing with every day who say, "Do not overly stratify this. Do not categorize it. It's all wrong." We should never. It's quite insane that we would sit around saying, "How can you tell the difference between um, an assault?" something boorish, something flirtatious that was misplaced? And how can we tell what things women can handle on their own independently or uh, or in a group or what things you need to bring HR in or what things do you need to bring the cops in on? It's quite absurd. Obviously, um, Char- Charlie Rose was right to be fired. Um the very fact that he made a young woman watch one of his own interviews is enough that was like that to me was assaultive. <laughs> so I think he is right to be fired. I enjoyed his interviews and I enjoyed being interviewed by him. I just want to stipulate that. Okay. Maybe I'll get in trouble for saying that. But, okay. Um, and it's not a commentary on Charlie Rose's uh, behavior. All right. Good. But would you have wanted to see him naked at any time? I, there are very few people on the planet I want to see naked. Really? Yeah. There's 7 billion people on the planet. That's I, true. I, I okay. really don't want to see really the vast majority naked. Okay. Yeah. Um, Talk about anti-orgasmic. But then why do we have to do the podcast in the nude? Uh, it's a good point. We're going to actually visit HR after this. Okay. And, right. and we'll, we'll talk about that. Um, so what's the question now? <laughs> the question <laughs> is, the question is, why are people critical of you? Why do you think people are critical of you for saying, look, everybody, stop, pause, Think about the fact that what Aziz Ansari did is not what Harvey Weinstein did. You because got a lot women of are for that. very wedded to the fact that the reason their hookups are so unfulfilling, they're very wedded to the notion that it's because of some patriarchal poison that they've swallowed. But if you came of age when I did, I'm 56, so I was in that kind of generation that was after the sexual revolution. And the whole idea was that men were, you know, really going to try to please you sexually. That was the whole point of it. And that, you know, a woman, the idea of of sort of entering into things that were unfulfilling for the woman, that that was just, you had to, as I always say, in the 50s, a woman's answer was no about sex. And in the 70s, when I grew up, the answer was maybe, you know, what do you got? What do you, what do you bring into the table on this? And today the answer is yes, of course I have to do it because something in my head told me I have to do it. And what's in your head is not the patriarchy. What's in your head is some feminist cant that made you think that you'll be stronger and freer and more of a badass if you do it. Um, and then you get in this intense, ridiculous pornographic scenario on the very first date where there are, you know, sexual acts that are painful, where, you you know, a lot of the problem is this, they're like they're not having any orgasms. It's just like horrible, not to sound like Dr. Ruth. The whole thing is horrible. And afterwards, they're rightly hurt. They're rightly sad. They're rightly angry. And they rightly need to talk to their friends. And the language that it gets funneled into is a language of abuse and assault instead of a language of I need different values to achieve the things I want in my sex life. Come back to values for a second. And I think this links the Penn State story to – to the Me Too story in some ways, what do our children today know? What is being taught to them about 
that that basic fundamental fundamental principle. Well, you know, our schools are in a complete morass because they they don't, you know, in the past there was a certain moral code that was expressed probably through by the time you were in junior high through civics lessons. There was an idea that running through the American story was this idea of freedom and this idea of equality. And there were certain things that probably were more explicitly Christian than we than people realized or that people thought maybe wasn't right to put into a public school. So there was a sense that even if you opposed it, there was a sense that there was a commonly shared set of values around what was right and what was wrong. And a lot of those values were terrible. And we got rid of them, such as, you know, anti-gay things that went through there. But we are completely lost as to that now in the public schools. And, you know, parents are alone in this world. You know, there's no common story out there that I think is valuable and and nurturing. There's It's so hypersexualized for kids. This idea that little girls are empowered the more intense sexual education they get. Ditto boys. I, I don't think there's anything out there that's good and, and nurturing for kids outside of the, the haven of the family. And I think that we've had this toxic femininity that, that nobody talks about, which is these young women who don't know how to calibrate their own meanness and who get together and decide that for whatever reason they can do profound damage to a man, his career, his reputation, um, it, it, in this moment and are taking revenge out. People but wait, were, most of the public cases that we know about, they seem to be based in something more than uh, a group of toxic feminists deciding to bring down an innocent man. I mean, you're not suggesting that this is a witch hunt of men, are you? No, I wrote a, a piece saying this isn't a witch hunt because, you know, all the cases that we've seen that have been public, you know, these men are very rightly pilloried and they're very right. right so, but you're saying the opposite a little because bit. Because I've been reporting the story for you on the problem with HR. We are, I think, that the story that's not yet told is how many men are getting either anonymously reported or reported for a very minor thing to an HR department. And I think that there is a vengeance. And I think what happened to Aziz Ansari was an absolute act of vengeance. That young woman went back on Twitter and said, let's put our abusers on blast. Mine is Aziz Ansari. And none of, and then she tried to get her story told in legitimate press and nobody would touch it because it was anonymous and lots of other reasons. And then she finally, you know, got to the very dreg circling the drain and found this place, babe.net. And, and she enacted her revenge on him. And that cabal of girls that run that thing exacted their revenge on him. What's missing right now from your perspective in American civic life, yes. in American family life, and the way we talk about the way we treat each other? Okay, I think there's a crisis right now that could only be solved in one way, which is that every single American needs to sit down and read the following documents. The Declaration, the Constitution, and the Gettysburg Address, which is often called the check on the Declaration to see how did we live up to these promises. If you read these documents and if you understand these documents, even on a rudimentary basis, then you understand the terms of service agreement between you and the country and what it will what it will put itself on the line to protect for you, and you will understand how rare and good those things are, and you will understand that they are those things and no more, that the country will, that there's a criminal process if a crime was committed against you, 
and no more. If you had a, a, you know, in any of the, every single one of these questions comes back to the terms of service agreement. And we have young people who just don't know those documents. They just hit agree on the terms of service agreement so that they could go on and learn some radical niche thing. And the things that young people, even at good colleges, seem to believe are true about America are not true. And they don't understand at a fundamental level what the country is that they live in. Link this observation to the current moment, the Me Too moment. What's the connection? Well, the connection is we're talking about crime, and then we're talking about things that are not right in a workplace, and then we're talking about things that aren't right, you know, in an intimate relationship, that at a certain point along that continuum, it's no longer about the government's responsibility to its citizens. At a certain point, it's about the person's responsibility to herself. And I have no moral problems at all with women having incredibly free sex lives. Go for it. I, you know, I have some of the women I've admired most in, in my life, writers, you know, I think Mary McCarthy, like I really, I really respect a woman, you know, that, that says that's the, the sex life she's going to create for herself. But you have to own it. You have to create it. You have to decide what the limits are. If you want affirmative consent, you have to tell the man before because that's your private sexual behavior. And no one should be intruding on it. And you shouldn't expect us to intrude on it. And you shouldn't expect all men to change because your particular sexual desire is one thing or another. Caitlin Flanagan. <laughs> You're fired. Caitlin Flanagan. <laughs> no, you know, uh, we love having you at The Atlantic because you say interesting things and you don't really give a shit. I don't give a shit. Why don't you give a shit? Because. Because so many people give a shit right now. No, because I don't of social give a media shit. and everything else. Why don't you give a shit? Because this is why it sounds so corny. I love America. You don't have to be liked. Willie Loman should stop worrying. We have these freedoms that everybody mocks. You can say whatever you want. You know, you'll get a lot of enemies. You know, there's about 20, you know, there's 30 people you want to see naked. There's 20 people I really care about how they feel about me. You know, my family and my closest friends. After that, I don't care if people are offended. If they don't like it, then turn this podcast off. Not this, the po- just the next episode of this podcast you can listen to. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if somebody likes what you say or not. You have the right to say it. You have the right to think it. You have the right to read the great books and be the artist reader of the book, as, as Navikov would say, and make your own meaning of the book. And beyond that, it just doesn't matter. Caitlin, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Jeffrey. The Atlantic Interview is produced by Diana Douglas and Kevin Townsend with production help from Kim Lau and Abdullah Fayyad. If you like this podcast, subscribe and rate us. I'm Jeffrey Goldberg, the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic. I'll see you next week.